Well, good afternoon, listeners. Here we are with the dogs program for the Christmas season. Uh, I'm afraid that we don't have very much good news for you, but um, there is a little. Uh, we want to talk with our press release 872 about the failure of contracting out. It's now quite obvious that there was a terrible muck-up with the quarantine disaster in Victoria. And I'm not sure that it's much better in Sydney. But in fact, education in Victoria and throughout Australia and in America and a lot of other places too these days, certainly in the UK, education has been contracted out to the private sector uh, in this country since the 1960s. And it also is a disaster if you believe in education in a democracy. Now, we're going to talk about uh, Christine Rundle and her article in The Age this week, which says that the verdict on contracting out is damning. But we're going to liken it to what has happened in education. As well as that, we want to uh, talk about the deep digital divide which the COVID or pandemic um, experience has revealed in Australia amongst our children. And then we might go across and see what is happening in America because there is a new Secretary of Education there. But let's now go straight to press release 872. The verdict on contracting out is damning. When it was contracted out, hotel quarantine in Victoria was an unmitigated disaster. Not only is it impossible to find out who was directly responsible for the expenditure of public money on this disastrous program, the chain reaction on public health, the economy and the actual loss of life has been catastrophic. According to Kristen Rundle, a law professor at Melbourne University, the final quarantine inquiry report uh, from uh, Justice Coates has far-reaching consequences. Her criticisms of the practice of contracting out essential services by public servants whose administrations have been restructured, underfunded and even gutted since the 1980s is both insightful and damning. It should be read and applied to what has happened and is happening to the contracting out of essential public education services to the private religious sector in this country since the 1960s. Now here is what Kristen Rundle writes, writes and Oliver will uh, start her article for you. Kristen Rundle writes as follows. Justice Coates' answer to the question that has remained front and centre since the breakdown of Victoria's first hotel quarantine system is that the so-called decision to contract out the front line of enforcement to private security guards was an orphan, with no one person or department able to be identified as having made it. If this conclusion is met with displeasure, disbelief or shock, the problem does not lie with Coates or those who have assisted her. The problem lies with how, in this instance and innumerable others, this was business as usual. There is little that Australian governments today do not contract out, in whole or in part. 
Once this fact is grasped, it should come as no surprise that those assembled to design Victoria's hotel quarantine system started from the assumption that contracted security service providers would be central to the operation. Still, it remains important to take seriously the surprise with which this insight into the workings of contemporary government has been met. It tells us, some, it tells us something important about the distance between public expectations and how governments actually do the work that we have entrusted them to do. The inquiry has equally taught us that the ubiquity of contracting out should not be confused with the extent to which its features and implications are understood by its practitioners. Coates' report reveals, in painful detail, that the mechanics of this particular exercise in outsourcing were often as opaque to government insiders as they were to the rest of us. Worse still, she has found that the relationship between contracting out and our most fundamental principle of political accountability, ministerial responsibility, was in this instance dysfunctional by design, despite the fact that it implicated millions of dollars of public money and stood to have serious consequences for public health and safety. No minister was involved in the decision to use private security contractors or its ongoing oversight. Cote rightly observes that this was at odds with any normal application of the principles of the Westminster system of responsible government. Back to you. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. So this is in the middle of the pandemic where this billionaire is suing the Pentagon for a military contract for what most people think is the place that you order books from. It's a very interesting case study in pulling out the different threads of militarism and how it can really be embedded in so many aspects of our lives that we don't even realize that when we order something from Amazon that we're putting workers' lives at risk and that we're supporting what is becoming an increasingly important actor in the military-industrial complex. Exposing that to people, I think, is very important. People will care if they understand that this is how things are all interconnected and linked. It's surfacing that information, it's making that accessible, and making it relevant for people's lives. And I think that is another opportunity that COVID-19 really presents to us, is that we are all connected, and these structures are all connected. We can see that much more clearly now than we could before. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Well, here we are back again talking about the dangers of contracting out, which have been made blatantly obvious by the quarantine disaster, the recent quarantine disaster. And Dale is going to continue um, the Kirsten Rundle um, argument or article that was in the age of the 22nd of December this week. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got the rest of the article here. Where do we go from here, she asks. 
Is it time to adapt our accountability expectations downwards to meet the features of our contracting out? Or is it time to revisit the central place this practice presently occupies within the workings of modern government so as to better meet those expectations? The first of these options is entirely unacceptable. After all, our expectations of political accountability and the mechanisms through which those expectations are carried have been sustained for far longer than contracting out has been a feature of governmental life. But if the second, and I would argue necessary path is to be taken, there is work that needs to be done. We need a framework of principle for determining when contracting out is appropriate and when it is not. We might begin to develop that framework of principle by asking such questions as the following. What is the government function to be performed? To what extent can it be broken down into specific tasks? What gaps or contingencies might be encountered? What is the character of the workforce that will be assigned the task? What lines of vision will be required? And what is the rationale for engaging private contractors rather than public personnel? There equally needs to be more attention to the move that lies at the heart of contracting out, namely the translation of government functions into services capable of being delivered by the private sector. This potentially transformative move has been significantly under-analysed by proponents and critics of, the con of contracting out alike. Conceptualising a government function as a service does much more than just facilitate the potential involvement of private sector providers in its delivery. It effectively embeds, as its starting point, the idea that private sector providers and public officers are equivalent in their suitability to perform to the relevant task. The matters before the inquiry illustrate this point well. Hotel quarantine was understood as requiring security services. These security services could be delivered by public sector, relevantly the police. One of Coates' findings being the involvement of the ADF was never really considered. Or private sector providers. The choice to be made between the two, to the extent that it was ever entertained, appears to have come down to some or other understanding of what would be the most efficient use of police resources in the circumstances. This is how the burden of a high-stakes government function was shifted to people with no specialised skills in either of its dual aspects, detention or infection control. Its logic left little room for noticing that what is efficient is not necessarily the same as what is appropriate. The key lesson of Victoria's first hotel quarantine experiment is, of course, that the latter went to the heart of things. This is precisely why the final report of Victoria's hotel quarantine inquiry needs to be received as a signalling opportunity. Coates' detailed findings stand as an invitation to all Australian governments to reassess their relationship to contracting out, because if they don't, it's very likely that we'll be here again. Well, dogs make no apology for reproducing this article in full since so much of the criticisms of the high-profile quarantine disaster applies 
to what has happened and is happening to Australian contracting out of education services, so-called, to the private religious sector. It could even be argued that the long-term effects of privatisation of educational services are longer-term and more disastrous than the recent pandemic disaster, not only for educational but for economic and health and many other uh, reasons. Now, we are, are actually forgetting very definite lessons from history here. The sad thing is that it's all happened before in education, particularly in the education as well as the health sector. The early colonial governments, with their 18th century European precedence of a highly stratified and aristocratic society, contracted out the education of the colony's children to the churches with what was called a denominational system because there are so many different religious groups in our community and were always. By 1844, they began to realise that they'd made a terrible mistake. They were certainly informed of it quite clearly by a select committee on education in 1984. And this is what they see. Oliver will read it out for you. The first great objection to the denominational system is its expense. The number of schools in a given locality ought to depend on the number of children requiring, requiring instruction which that locality contains. It appears to your committee, impossible not to see, that the very essence of a denominational system is to leave the majority uneducated in order to thoroughly imbue the minority with peculiar tenets. It is a system always tending to excess or defect, the natural result of which is that wherever one school is founded, two or three others will arise, not because they are wanted, but because it is feared that proselytes will be made. It places the state in the awkward dilemma or of either supplying money whose expenditure it is not permitted to regulate, or of interfering between the clergy and their superiors to the manifest arrangement of the whole ecclesiastical polity. Your committee recommend that one uniform system shall be established for the whole of the colony, and that, and that an adherence to that system should be made the indispensable condition under which public aid will be granted. Our forebears discovered that the only way to ensure any semblance of equality of opportunity for the education of a nation's children was with a public system responsible for every cent of public money to a representative minister. The verdict has long ago been made on the disaster of contracting out essential public services paid for with public money. When will we ever learn? You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, 
go to 3cr.org.au. country we as indigenous people know have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of in particular indigenous truths until history is told by the vanquished lens which is our people telling our story our way and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning well people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies when you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people. And so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, we've been concentrating on problems in Australia, but uh, there is another country which Australia is closely tied to, uh, sometimes people wonder whether we are the 51st state or 52nd state uh, of the United States of America. But there is no doubt that what is happening there does have repercussions all around the world, uh, not only for uh, security and other reasons, but for educational reasons. And Biden has finally picked a new Secretary of Education, the Trump secretary, Becky DeVos, was a complete and utter disaster, like a lot of other things, unfortunately, in the Trump administration. And Biden is uh, inheriting a bit of a mess with American education, with the charter schools. And also uh, we find that the $900 billion, uh, pandemic money, some of that is going to go to private schools as well, and there's concern about that. But um, Biden has picked the Connecticut Commissioner, Miguel Cardonis, as Secretary of Education. Well, who is he? This is what the Washington Post has written about him. Uh, he's named Connecticut's top school official last year, and if confirmed, he will have achieved a meteoric rise moving from an assistant superintendent at Meriden in Connecticut, a district with 9,000 students, to Secretary of Education in less than two years. It's quite extraordinary. He was born in Meriden to Puerto Rican parents who lived in public housing. He began his career as a fourth grade teacher and he rocketed up the ranks becoming the state's youngest principal at the age of 28. He was named the state's principal of the year in 2012. So this is a man who is a very accomplished and dedicated teacher who hasn't come from the um, Brahmin left, but from the, um, the Puerto Rican 
uh, immigrants. A finalist for the job was Leslie Fenwick, who was former dean of the Howard University School of Education and a fierce critic of education policies, such as test-based accountability for schools and teachers, who have been popular with centrists in both political parties. But Cardona has represented a safer selection. He doesn't appear to have been a combatant in education wars, though he did challenge teacher unions as he worked to reopen schools this fall. Democrats who support accountability-type education changes were concerned that Fenwick would get the job and they lobbied for Cardona. So Cardona is a safer selection. He's not going to ruffle too many Democratic or Republican feathers. He doesn't appear to have been a combatant. So this much is clear. Biden has rejected the progressive candidate, Dr. Leslie T. Fenwick. However, Dr. Cardona is not a broadie, nor a DFER favourite, nor a member of Jeb Bush's Chiefs for Change. All of that is actually good news for teachers in America. And Diana Ravitch notes that we have these fake reformers lobbied hard for one of their own and they lost. So that's good news too. Dr Cardona has not taken a position on the major issues that define the major education policy battles of the past two decades. He's been critical of excessive testing, but he does not oppose the use of standardised testing in principle. He has been critical of test-based evaluation of teachers, a major element of the race to the top, because he knows that it doesn't work. He's neither for nor against charter schools, even though Connecticut, Connecticut, I'm sorry, experienced some of the worst charter scandals in the nation and is the home of, of the Sackler-funded CONCAN, which morphed into 50CAN to spread the privatisation movement nationally. Connecticut is also the home base of Achievement First, one of the premier no-excuses chartered chain, known in the past for harsh discipline. The fact that three of the politically powerful AF No Excuses charters are on probation is a hopeful sign that he intends to hold charters to the same standards as public schools. Diana Ravitch, and I got this information from his, her blog, read his Twitter feed and she got the impression that he's a very decent and concerned administrator who cheers on students and teachers. He has not weighed in on political issues that roil the education policy world. She, however, is still hoping for a secretary who re recognises that the past 20 years have been a nightmare for American public schools, their students and their teachers. She's still hoping for someone who will publicly admit that federal education policy has been a disaster since no child left behind and its kissing cousin raised to the top 
modified slightly by the Every Student Succeeds Act. Maybe Dr Cardona will be that person, and she's hoping. She believes that the federal government has exceeded its competence for 20 years and has dramatically overreached by trying to tell schools how to reform themselves when there is hardly a soul in Washington, D.C., who knows how to reform schools. Our nearly, their nearly 100,000 public schools are still choking on the toxic fumes of No Child Left Behind, a law that was built on the hoax of the Texas miracle. The American teachers now know that there was no Texas miracle, but federal and state policymakers still proceed mindlessly on the same simple-minded track that was set into law as early as 2001. It was a neoliberal idea. Perhaps Dr Cardona will introduce a note of humility into federal policy, she hopes. If so, he will have to push hard to lift the heavy hand of the federal government. Twenty years of the Bush-Obama-Trump policies have squeezed the joy out of American education. Many schools have concentrated on testing and test prepping while eliminating recess and extinguishing the arts. As an experienced educator, Dr Cardona knows this has happened. He will be in a position, she hopes, to set a new course. Now, if he does this, he'll push back against the mandated annual testing regime that is not known in any nation with high-performing schools. And Australia here has to learn from America about really how good NAPLAN is, especially if it is truncating the curriculum that our children are exposed to. If Cardona sets a new course, he will grant waivers to every state to suspend the federal tests in 2021. And he'll ask Congress to defund the $440 million federal charter schools program which is not needed and has proved effective only in spreading corporate charter chains where they're not wanted. And these are for-profit schools. They're not even religious private schools. Uh, so further, if he wants genuine reforms, he'll begin the process of writing a new federal law to replace the Every Student Succeeds Act and dramatically reduce the burdens imposed by clueless politicians of the nation's schools. Now, Dr Cardona has not been known for his efforts to reopen schools during the pandemic. And, of course, anyone who did want to reopen schools was placing teachers in America in a very dangerous position health-wise. Dr Cardona knows that this can't happen without resources to reopen safely because the pandemic is surging again and it's not over, certainly not in America. Cardona knows this and he'll have to move with caution not to put the lives of students and staff at risk. So the people in America are not judging Cardona until they see what he does, because, as we all know, actions always speak louder than words. And she's hoping... Diane Ravitch and others are hoping 
that they're going to be pleasantly surprised because hope springs eternal and we can't live without it. And that, of course, is why we are here just one day after Christmas Day and why the Dogs Program goes to air every Saturday because we hope and we have lived in hope since the 1960s that the things will get better for our public education system in this country because it is a treasure which we cannot afford to lose. Well, let's come back to Australia and what's been happening to our teachers and students during the pandemic. We might be thinking that we're a bit better off than America, and uh, certainly we appear to be at this stage, but that doesn't mean to say that all has been rosy for our children uh, who don't have access to the internet and who don't have the very latest in digital technology. And Oliver is going to tell us what the AEU, that's the Australian Education Union, has done about this. They have commissioned Barbara Preston to do some research and the findings are not pretty. Lockdown sent schools scrambling. Home offices were set up. Lessons plans were shelved and new programs hastily written. And for educators at many schools, there was another task, making sure that every student could access their education either online or at least from home. For some teachers, that meant sourcing laptops and internet dongles so students without home internet access had a connection and, and a device to work on. For others, it meant a return to pen and paper lessons and travelling to homes to drop off photocopied work packs because the task of equipping all students with laptops was simply too great. COVID-19 brought into stark light the truth that governments have spent the best part of two decades trying to ignore. There is a deep digital divide in our schools, and it is getting wider. Lack of access to the tools that so many of us take for granted has long disadvantaged tens of thousands of students, but when schools switched to remote learning, it became critical. Now, armed with new figures that show the extent of the problem, the AEU is calling for the federal government to act by drawing up funded plans to ensure every child has the tools they need to learn and the training to use them. A report by researcher Barbara Preston, commissioned by the union, takes a deep dive through published census and other data to reveal that 125,000 students in Australian public schools had no home internet access at the time of the last census, 2016. As recently as 2019, 4 million Australians had only mobile internet access, according to the Australian Digital Inclusion Index. For students without a space of their own at home to work uninterrupted, the need to scrap for a connection on a phone with a limited data plan, which might also be required by a parent for work or job hunting, is an added burden. COVID-19 hasn't created the digital, digital divide. It's exposed the deep inequality in digital inclusion that exists for our students, says AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe. That has been exacerbated by the social disadvantage faced by the students in rural and remote locations, students living in poverty, and students who live in insecure housing or in unstable households. The rollout of the national broadband network and the interventions of schools and state governments during the COVID lockdowns have connected many students, but, Preston says, that is not enough. Digital inclusion requires digital ability, 
as well as access to affordable and appropriate hardware and software. Digital ability requires skills, knowledge, confidence, and a sense of control when using information technology and the internet. That takes resources and time to develop, and without it, there cannot be successful digitally-based learning away from school, whether it is remote learning, homework, or independent study. Preston says students and their parents and carers who have not had extensive internet experience have been delayed in developing digital skills and confidence. They are very disadvantaged relative to their peers who have had broadband internet at home for some time. The more that digital work becomes the norm, even if not formally required by schools, the more those without digital inclusion at home are disadvantaged. Poverty and family instability are key factors in the digital divide. Among families in the bottom third of incomes, 9% of public school students had no home internet, compared to 1% in the highest third. For the 19% who moved home in the past year, the figure rose to 11%. These disadvantages inevitably fell most heavily on students in the government school sector. The proportion of state school students without internet access, 5%, is more than double that of students in the Catholic and independent sectors. Among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, 21% have no access at home, rising to an alarming 45% in the Northern Territory. Preston's research indicates the scale of the problem, but detailed data to inform action remains lacking. What is needed is school-by-school data to identify which students are falling through the cracks and what intervention is needed to create something approaching a level playing field. The AEU is calling for a digital equity audit to identify the hardware, software, training and development required to give schools and educators the capacity to provide extra learning support for students. So far, the federal government has shown little interest in addressing the issue. Loans to students of laptops and dongles by states and territories, such as Victoria and New South Wales, provide a stopgap measure. There is a strong role for the Commonwealth to play here and provide recurrent funding for schools, Haythorpe says. It all requires money, but for us this is about inequality at every level. Getting connected. When Thomas's Sydney-based primary primary slash secondary school switched to home learning, his mother merrily says things got tricky. The library wasn't open, and you couldn't exactly sit around in a shopping centre, she says. The family was already struggling financially when the pandemic hit, and Merrily is a full-time carer for her own mother. Their experience highlights how the digital divide is about more than just having the right equipment. We have a laptop, she says. I saved and saved and went without so he could have it. But the data plans are expensive. Trying to fund Wi-Fi for him was almost impossible. Merrily says she also found it difficult to help Thomas with his schoolwork because her own education was limited. I wanted Thomas to have a good education because I ended up having to drop out of school. COVID-19 has made it very hard for students. Help came through children's charity, the Smith family, which through sponsorship has helped Thomas get connected to the internet and provided other support. The Smith family reports that around one quarter of the 50,000 children sponsored through its Learning for Life program have no internet access at home. Back to you.
you know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, your blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Well, uh, there's other news that is not really very good here in in, uh, Victoria. We have already referred to you uh, to the Shepparton Super School problem. Uh, we had to fight again and again back in the 1990s, don't you remember, when they started closing our schools and making super schools. You would have thought that they would have learned their lesson, the same as they would have learned the lesson of contracting out education services, but they haven't. Up there in Shepparton, they have tried to make a super school out of four local schools, all of which were perfectly happy doing what they were doing, which were local uh, because there are different localities up there in Shepparton and they all love their schools and they are not happy with their super school. Now, the Save Our Schools people in Canberra have been taking up this issue and you can also go to a website, there is a Facebook page for the Save Our Schools people, uh, on the Save Our Schools website for the Shepparton people. But Dale is going to fill in on what is going on up there in Shepparton with our public schools because their concerns are our concerns too. Thank you, Jean. Yeah, I've got an article here by Colleen Jones, who uh, is an advocate for Greater Shepparton Voice for Choice and Save Our Schools. Super school chaos. There needs to be a serious conversation about the direction being taken by state governments in Australia to close schools and merge into larger single super schools. Parents need to band together and say enough is enough. Every bad outcome you have imagined for your school merger of up to four schools will come true. You will see an increase and more violent bullying assaults occurring. You will see more wagging. You will have a lowered lowering of expected and academic standards. Your children will become numbers and get lost in poor ad- administration. They will be offered more choices that can't be delivered. Many will not form lasting relationships with their teachers and peers. You will be ignored if you try and advocate for your child. Students with special needs will be worse off. Low socioeconomic and disadvantaged students will fall through the cracks along with previously above average students. They will be treated like robots, encouraged to perform to a level playing field and the so-called 
new wellbeing programs will fail with teachers unable to cope with the problems the new systems create. You will see a decrease in school numbers as parents try to find a more suitable option for their children. You will see an exodus of experienced, caring teachers, many debunking to the private system as they arrive at the conclusion they do not believe in these educational models. You will see many of your previously happy and achieving teachers reduced to taking stress leave to cope. You will see a need for change that you feel incapable of achieving as no one that can change it is listening. One size does not fit all and it never will. In Greater Shepparton, Victoria, this was inflicted on our community with inadequate consultation despite contrary propaganda. Four good schools were closed that were competing well against state averages for, for like schools. School results were added together, then averaged, to show poor academic achievement when not the case at all, for all. Dropout rates were exaggerated. It was fast-tracked to minimise objections to the point of not properly following rules for mergers and announcing the merger was proceeding months before all four school councils had formally voted on the unwanted education plan. Unnecessary campus transitioning was commenced two years before a building was to arrive in order to establish the school and prevent community backlash. Sound familiar? It could not have been a worse experiment with disastrous results in one year of operation. They gambled with our children's wellbeing and education and lost. Immediately, all vertical modular group SEAL and fast-tracking programs, the ICANN program for students with special needs, were discarded. Students performing above their year level were instantly returned to a lower standard. Funded students with special needs were not having their needs met. One told they could not be catered for and it would be better if they went elsewhere. There has been an increase in violent assaults with gangs of students attacking one held down with their heads while their heads are stomped on, ending in hospital treatment. One outbreak had a report had a reported eighty students involved with threats to bring knives to school, played down as a, a few students involved and quickly handled, when teachers and students actually fled in fear. A single school option means inadequate consequences. The transition period has been undertaken without empathy for students or teachers, with issues for a large socioeconomic demographic being dismissed after appeals to the school council. Students felt displaced and confused. Previously well-behaved students acted out accordingly. Teachers were moved between campuses and swapping and swapped to teaching unfamiliar year levels. So lasting student-teacher relationships could not form. A whistleblower teacher recently stated that the literacy and numeracy skills among some students are so far below where they were and that's because of the lack of consistency. Education in Shepparton will never succeed unless something miraculous happens. We have lost an inordinate number of experienced teachers and cannot attract the same 45 teachers are confirmed to have resigned or moved to smaller public, secondary, independent or Catholic schools during 2019 and 2020, including principals.
more are planning to go. Several are on or have taken stress leave. The teacher also remarked that staff were afraid of speaking out for fear of retribution and morale is at an all-time low. A lot is blamed on the management style as the plan was rolled out, with the executive principal recently removed. But parents are strongly stating that this model is not what they want for their children. Greater Shepparton is a diverse demographic over a large area. The previous schools accommodated the various needs of the community. We now have only one public secondary school for an area of 2,422 square kilometres and a growing population forecast to be 83,234 by 2036. The school was to commence with an expected enrolment of 2,700 in 2020, with ability to cater for 3,000 students when built. It commenced with 2,334 at the start of 2020 and dropped to 2,182 in November, a total loss of around 518 students from the end of 2019. Many students who previously walked or rode to school promoted by health experts now do not have that option and are forced onto buses for up to three hours per day, some who live within 10 kilometres. Parents feel trapped as many are unable for financial or other reasons to move elsewhere. If children are bullied or assaulted, if parents feel their child is not receiving an adequate education, there is no other public school provided. You might not experience it to this extent as we had the added injustice of poor management from the start and our campus principals had no voice. You will, however, see that a single school of this size is not going to deliver a learning environment where relationships can be built and maintained and staff, students and parents know each other from start to finish because of the size of the school. The former Stop the Shepparton Super School group has morphed into Voice for Choice, Greater Shepparton, and the focus is now aimed at returning choice to public education to the district, this time with true community consultation. The community does not want 3,000 students in one school. We had superior schools. We had and need choice of schools. We know what we want in our schools and what model. All we need is for someone to listen. And Wynn News also uh, went out to Shepparton and spoke to some of the people involved. So here's an excerpt from a little Wynn News interview. Claims of serious issues at Shepparton's revolutionary super school. We started hearing stories probably from the start. Um, yeah, and then we heard teachers going out on stress leave. You just hear so much negative feedback and um, it seems to be on all levels. Parents are calling for significant change after Executive Principal Genevieve Simpson stepped down to pursue other opportunities within the Education Department. The staff I talked to had some issues with uh, the management and how the transition were running, was running, but they're very positive um, and pro the project and the merger. And the department's still positive. I acknowledge the hard work that Genevieve's done and thank her for that. Uh, and now the time's come to 
uh, build on that work, uh, build a really strong and cohesive staff team. Recruitment will soon begin for a long-term replacement. I hope things improve into the future, but I am concerned because uh, so far we've been having these ongoing issues that just don't seem to be stopping. Construction on the state-of-the-art Horton Street campus is well underway and will be completed by Term 1 of 2022. More than 2,000 students are expected to walk through the gates. It's important to be realistic that it's a complex thing and we can have a community discussion about how we do it. Grace Evans, Win News. Well, that's a sad story, isn't it? Uh, and, uh, yes, the dogs are aware of these kind of uh, mega schools that they romanced about in the 1990s. Um, small schools, 500 for a secondary school, can be a very, very nice number. And they had it. If it's not broken, then why, why, why proceed to break it? Uh, dogs are all for centralised administrations, but the people at the centre should be committed to public education and committed to the schools that the local people want. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the Andrews government is talking about putting money into infrastructure, and there's a very interesting article, oh, sorry, a letter uh, in the age of December the 23rd from uh, Marie Nash from Baldwin. She says, let's hope infrastructure spending on upgrading schools actually goes to government schools in dire need and not to private schools wanting to upgrade their pool or some other necessity. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! 
You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. So uh, that's it. That's it for today. Uh, we'll be here again next week because the dogs live in hope and we're not going to give up the battle for public education any time in the near future. So that's it and it's bye for now from Dale and me. If you want to go to find out more about the dogs and read our latest news release, then our website is www.adogs.org. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.